Spiritual stability comes from believing that God is both great and good and surrendering everything to Him. When you understand that God is infinitely powerful and infinitely loving, you can surrender everything to Him and know He'll make better decisions than you will. Therefore, you don't have to worry. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you'd open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, we'll continue in chapter 4. Remember, Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians when he was in prison in Rome. He'd been in prison for about four years. It's a very, very personal letter. It's probably the most personal letter he wrote that's recorded in the New Testament. This church at Philippi had supported his ministry over the years financially and otherwise. They'd heard that he was in prison, hadn't seen him in about five years, so they sent Epaphroditus to Rome to see how Paul was doing. And this letter is really a thank you letter that was Epaphroditus was going to carry back to them, but he also exhorts them to deal with some issues in the church. There is no perfect church as, as healthy as the church at Philippi was. They had personal rivalries. They had some ambition that were harming their members, their ministry. Paul says, look, you need to be humble servants. You need to follow the example of Jesus Christ. And when you are humble, you will be unified. So Philippi also was a hotbed of false teachers. There was a lot of false teachers back in the day, just like there is now. They claimed to belong to Christ, but really they were actually trusted in their own good works to earn God's favor. Paul says, look, your life mission as a Christian is very simple. Become more and more like Jesus every day. And we look at that and say, okay, I get that. So the question would be, are you more like Jesus today than you were yesterday? How would we know? That's an interesting dilemma. Are you going to be more like Jesus tomorrow than you were today? Not if you don't do anything today, you won't be any different than you were yesterday. So we'll talk about that. So the reason, the motive for, for, for pursuing Christ-likeness is the certain hope of heaven. We're not staying here. We're going to spend eternity with Christ in heaven. And Paul now in chapter 4 is going to talk about a very, very key principle the first seven verses, actually the first nine verses, Lord willing, we'll get to seven and nine next week. Today we'll just look at one through seven. He's going to talk about spiritual stability. Spiritual stability, verse one, chapter four. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Here's the principle. Spiritual stability comes from a personal relationship with our Lord. Spiritual stability comes from a personal relationship with our Lord. Anytime you see the word therefore in a chapter, it's saying, what's it there for? You're going to look back and find out what he was talking about. And he'd been talking about joy in the Lord, living a life that's consistent with the gospel, following Christ in humility, living and loving with each other, discerning false teaching. So the first nine verses of this chapter four are standing firm. And standing firm produces peace. And so we'll talk about that as well. The source of our peace, the source of our stability, the source of our, 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 our foundation is our relationship with God. And he uses the word beloved. He actually uses it twice, which is interesting. The term of endearment, affection. He obviously had a very close relationship with this church at Philippi. Of all the churches he founded, which were a number this church was probably the one he was closest to at that point in time. Furthermore, he uses the word brethren, which is kind of interesting. We don't hear that much anymore. We talk about brother, sister type of thing. So it usually relates to a bloodline, a bloodline family relationship. You share a common heritage. You share a common parentage. And we as Christians, we have a lot in common, right? We have a common history. We were all dead in trespasses and sins at one time. All of us had a before Christ life. Most of it was pretty ugly. We have a common Savior, Jesus Christ, who paid our sin debt. We have a common journey. We're on this pilgrimage toward heaven. We call it doing life together. 
And we have a common destiny. We're headed in the same direction. Those who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord are going to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. And I know you look around and you go, well, I'm looking forward to getting to heaven, but I'm not sure I'm looking forward to spending eternity with you. <laughs> of course, they're saying, ah, that feeling is mutual, right? The good news is you're going to be changed before you get to heaven. When you get to heaven, 1 Corinthians 15 says, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, you will become like Christ, which means you will be much more lovable there than you are here, which is a very good thing. No, seriously, you will be. You'll be immediately made like Christ at the moment of death to spend eternity with Jesus. So it's going to be a marvelous thing. And Paul says, I long to see you. Remember, he hasn't seen him for four years. He's been in prison for four years. It's probably closer to five. And he misses them. And he says, I long to see you. This is extended separation. One of the things that COVID taught us or should have taught us is the value of face-to-face -face fellowship. I'll tell you, I like this a lot better than making little video clips and sending them to you. This is much superior. I think God designed us to do face-to-face -face fellowship with other people, and COVID should have taught us that. Furthermore, Paul describes this church. He said, you are my joy and my crown, and they're faithful, and the faithfulness of the saints here brought him great joy. This word crown is an interesting word. It's the word Stephanos. We get the word Stephen. S-T-E-P-H-N, the name Stephen. It really means the victor's crown. It means the runner's wreath. It was, uh, was the wreath of olive branches you got when you ran a race in the, in, the, in the Olympic Games and you won the gold medal. So it's a reward for victory. He says, you, you saints at Philippi are my reward. You are my victor's wreath uh, because you're proof that the ministry I have is not in vain because you're standing strong in the Lord. And that's what he commands them to do. He says, I want you to stand firm or stand fast. Now, this is a military term. It describes a soldier standing at their post, doing their duty in the face of opposition or conflict or attack. So standing firm doesn't mean sleeping. It means I'm standing firm, but I have to stand firm because there's opposition coming at me. There's enemy coming at me. There's conflict coming at me. You know, you don't need to stand firm when life is smooth sailing. But if you're in the middle of a storm on the sea or earthquakes in your life, you're going to need to stand firm. Most of us from time to time encounter storms and we encounter earthquakes. What we do know is every single day we encounter spiritual conflict. Ephesians 6.1 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might put on the full armor of God. Why would you do that? Well, you don't need full armor when you're in Disneyland, but you definitely need it in Afghanistan. He says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to do what? Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So the foundation that we stand on is in the Lord. It's in Christ alone. There's an old song, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Yeah. Our culture teaches us that you should build your life on financial success, career advancement, prestige, big houses, pleasant circumstances, other people, or here's the best one, build your life on yourself. I mean, you know, we, we did, they did a survey here a while back, and a significant chunk of the population, you know who their hero is? Themselves. Now, that's called narcissism on steroids, Right? I mean, the mirror does not tell me good things about myself, right? I mean, so the only thing that never changes is God, and that's why we build our life, our foundation on him. Malachi 3.6, Israel is kind of whining a little bit and rah, 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 to God, and God gives them an interesting message. He said, Israel, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Israel, are not consumed. If God was not a faithful, loving, patient, merciful, forgiving God who never changed, none of us would be here. But he's faithful, consistent, he never changes. He's always loving, he's always holy, and guess what? He always hates evil, and that will never change. Now, speaking of spiritual stability, one of the best pictures of spiritual stability is found in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 tells that the righteous man, righteous woman, 
does not believe like, behave like, or belong to the realm of the wicked. How blessed is the man, the person who does what? Not walk in the counsel of the wicked, not stand in the paths of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, right? In contrast to the wicked man, the righteous person in Psalm 2, but his or hers, the righteous person's delight is in what? Law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and as a result of that, what will he be like? The word is spiritually stable. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. So the righteous person takes joy in his vertical relationship, their vertical relationship with God, and they meditate on God's word how often? Day and night. And And you say, well, how does that work? Well, I'll tell you what, when you get up at 2 a.m., because your bladder woke you up, that's a really good time to pray. I'm serious. It's really Because if you don't pray, you know what you're going to do? You're going to worry about today or tomorrow. Whatever. That's a really good call to prayer. You can't believe how much praying I do it between two and four. It's just pretty amazing stuff, right? So take joy in your vertical relationship with God. Meditate on God's word. The word meditate here is the picture of a cow chewing their cud. Cows have multiple stomachs, and a lot of times they eat grass, and they lay down, and they, they chew the cud, which means they bring it back up from the stomach again and chew, 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 because they're trying to extract every ounce of nutrition from that grass. That's what we do when we meditate on God's Word. We chew on it. We think about it. We mutter on it. We talk to ourselves about it. We're trying to extract that nutrition from it. So spiritual nutrition plus spiritual exercises produces spiritual stability. And the righteous person's compared to a tree that has very deep roots, and they sink those roots into the life-giving stream of God's Word, and guess what? They produce fruit even in adversity, even in the desert, even when the circumstances are difficult. And God says, if you do that, you will prosper in whatever I call you to do. And then he contrasts the unstable. He said, in contrast, the wicked are not, like, are not so. They are like what? They are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Well, when you harvest wheat or rice or whatever, what are you after? You're after the seed. Everything but the seed is chaff. Leaves, stems, stalks, roots, all chaff. And it's so lightweight that the wind blows chaff away. If you build your life on the Lord, you're going to be stable. If you build your life on anything but the Lord, it produces instability and ruin. And Paul next is going to call out two people who are not standing firm in the Lord. Verse 2. He says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Here's the principle. Spiritual stability comes from living in harmony with God's people. Spiritual stability comes from living in harmony with God's people. Now the word urge, it's really the word paraclete, the Greek word paraclete. It means one who pleads, one who encourages, one who helps with very strong desire. Paul is so concerned about this conflict in this church that he names names. Remember, this letter is going to be read out loud in front of God and everybody in the public assembly. Can you picture this? They're reading the letter, blah, 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 and he goes, I urge Yodi and Sekendiki to get their act together. Boo! I mean, that's a direct hit right there, right? Here's what's interesting. The name Yodia means prosperous journey. The name Syntyche means pleasant acquaintance. So prosperous journey and pleasant acquaintance are behaving like twisted sisters in a cat fight. (laughs) Seriously, and Paul calls them out on it. They're not living up to the meaning of their names. They're quarreling. And tragically, this conflict has metastasized into the body of Christ at Philippi. They seem to be prominent leaders, and they also seem to be leaders of two factions. So there's conflict in this church family because these two individuals cannot or will not resolve their conflict. Now, some things we know. This conflict was not a doctrinal issue. It wasn't a fight over biblical truth, because if it was, Paul would have called it out and said, 
One of you is right, one of you is wrong, because one of you is agreeing with a biblical position, one of you is not. So this is clearly not a biblical position of right or wrong. Otherwise, God would have called it out. It's a matter of preference. This is a matter of opinion. They're fighting over something that's not biblical truth. It's a preference. And that's what we usually fight about, right? How many church fights are over doctrine? Relatively few. In church, what people argue about is how you should dress, what kind of music you like. I like this worship. Should we baptize infants or adults? Are you pre-trip, mid-trip, post-trip? We argue about stuff that's not going to get you into heaven. And it's not going to keep you out of heaven either, right? Most church splits do not occur over biblical doctrine issues. They occur over matters of personal preference. And Satan is the master of divide and conquer. So Satan loves it when we start nitpicking each other over stuff that doesn't matter. God is the author of peace and harmony, and that's why Paul commands us to live in harmony in the Lord, which he referred to in verse 127, Philippians. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, which means live up to what comes out of your mouth, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear that you are standing firm, there's that word again, in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So he says, Walk your talk. If you say you're a Christian, live like it. Number two, stand firm, don't waver. Number three, be of one mind. Live in harmony with each other. Now, harmony, getting along with each other, is probably one of the most powerful testimonies to the reality of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you why. Divorce is the normal course of human relationships. It's normal for us to disagree and to separate, right? That's because we're all inherently selfish. You have to work at keeping relationships intact. Have you ever noticed that relationships require labor? Say yes. Yeah, I know. It's joyful labor, it can be, but it requires work. The normal relational state of fallen people is to separate. But discord even though it's normal, is deadly to the church because nothing will destroy your Christian testimony quicker than failure to live up to what you say you believe. It destroys your own testimony. It also destabilizes the church. Now, the key to living in harmony is the last phrase. He says, live in harmony, how? In the Lord. Here's the deal. If you're not in harmony with God vertically, you're not going to be in harmony with each other horizontally. The health of your vertical relationship with Jesus Christ determines the health of your horizontal relationship with other people. Since God has forgiven us, we need to forgive others. Ephesians 4 says what? How do we treat other people? Be kind. Isn't that what we teach our children? I hope you're teaching your children, be kind to one another. How do you do that? Tender-hearted. Here's the important part forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. This is probably the number one requirement of any long-standing relationship. If you will not forgive each other, your children, your spouses, your grandchildren, your colleagues, your whatever, your relationship won't last because every one of us will sin against each other. We will. That's because who we are. Forgiveness is what heals those breaks. And we are to forgive because Jesus Christ forgave us even though we sinned against him. Verse 3. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women, he's talking about Yodi and Syndike, who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, we don't know who this true comrade is. But the word in Greek means yoke fellow. Yoke fellow. The picture is you have oxen. Oxen, you know what a yoke is. It's a wooden yoke that keeps them together. Two oxen who are together pulling a load. It could be a hay wagon. I don't know. It could be a, a, a primitive plow. But you have two oxen who are, they have a common load and a common direction and a common set of goals. Today we don't say, that's my yoke fellow. You say, that's my business partner. That's my colleague at work. You know, you share a common goal, you share a common 
objective, whether it's in ministry or business or whatever. So Paul's probably talking to another leader in the church at Philippi, maybe an elder and another man, Clement, and he says, get involved and help these women resolve this conflict. Come alongside and provide assistance. Clearly, they haven't been able to fix it in months. Paul hears about this in Rome. Rome is 800 miles west of Philippi. So by the time Paul hears about it, it's been going on for a while. I mean, you didn't send a text and so well, so-and-so got in a cat fight last night. I mean, this is weeks and months. This has been going on for a long time at that point. So Paul says, they obviously need help getting this figured out. Jesus commanded the same thing in Matthew 5, 9. He says, blessed are the peacekeepers, right? It says, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called children of God. You know, we are not called just to keep the peace. We are called to make peace, be used by God to help bring peace out of conflict. And that takes active involvement. And Paul says, these women have known me for 10 years. They shared my struggle in the gospel. They probably were acquaintances of Lydia. Remember when Paul first came to Philippi, went down to the riverside, met Lydia? They were probably acquaintances of first. He's known them for over 10 years. And they've been faithful, faithful helpers. But he said, They've been, he said, Paul, the, these women have been struggling with me in, in bringing the gospel. The word struggle is athletics. It means a team. These women have been part of Paul's team to build the church at Philippi. So these are not, these two women are not brand new believers. They've been in the faith for a long time. And they're seasoned, but somehow they got crossways with each other. And they're not living in harmony and is destabilizing the church because people are taking sides. And God, Paul is calling the entire church as a team to come in and help them resolve this conflict. And following this bit of negative news, Paul follows this with one of the more paradoxical statements in the chapter. He says, right after this conflict, this command to resolve this conflict in verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord Always. Yes, swallow that one. Again, I will say rejoice. Here's the principle. Spiritual stability comes when we count God's blessings and thank Him for His faithful love. Spiritual stability comes when we count God's blessings and thank Him for His faithful love. One of the more interesting things about this verse is it's not a suggestion. It's a command. He says... Rejoice in the Lord always. Joy is neither optional nor occasional. Joy is to be a continual state of mind that is chosen by the child of God. Now, it's not a command to rejoice in your circumstances. I know many of you in your room, and you, some of you have extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Paul's not saying, rejoice in your painful circumstances. Isn't that what he's saying? He's not saying rejoice in your accomplishments, because sometimes those disappear quickly. He doesn't say rejoice in other people, because other people will fail you and break your heart. He doesn't say rejoice in your own capacity, because that's going to break down too. He says rejoice in what? In the Lord, right? In the provision, the protection, and the presence of the Lord. See, the source of our joy is the everlasting love of God Nothing else, because everything else is going to change. Lamentations 3, the whole book, was written by Jeremiah after the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel was devastated by the Babylonians. I mean, they burned the city to the ground, tore down the walls, captured all the people. The land is devastated. Looks like Maricopa, right? Like a moonscape. I mean, literally. I mean, that's kind of what it is. And Jeremiah's walking through the city, and he's weeping. He's lamenting. And then comes Lamentations 3, and is one of the more unusual, probably, passages in the entire book. And he says, Lamentations 3.21, This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Certainly not in circumstances. He's in a burned-out city, right? The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
So his hope isn't in circumstances. His hope is in the love of the Lord. His hope is in the faithfulness of God. And when you are in difficult circumstances, you're not going to rejoice in those. God didn't call you to rejoice in those. Those are painful. He says, I want you to take joy in the fact that I will always love you. That wherever you are, if you're in the ER, or you're in a car accident, or you just got fired, or you got an extra bill you didn't count on, or your grandchildren or children are doing something that you don't like, or maybe your spouse is, or you're lonely. Whatever it is, it's not joy in your circumstances. It's joy in the faithful love and compassion of God. And Jeremiah is actually making a list of the things that God is faithful in when he's walking through this burned-out city and he's rejoicing and thanking God for all of his faithfulness in the middle of national catastrophe. And for many of us, that is simply a call to conscious obedience because most of us, when we look around the world today, we go, this place is a mess. Amen? So you're not supposed to take joy in the fact that the world is a mess. You take joy in the fact that God is sovereign in the middle of the mess. God's loving kindnesses are beyond counting, but it would do good for us to make a partial list. We rejoice in what? God's sovereign control over everything and everyone. There is nothing that happens on planet Earth that God's not in control of. Number two, we rejoice that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Even, maybe even especially, the hard things, the tough things, the things we'd rather get rid of, God causes to work together for good. We rejoice that God loved us enough to send Jesus, His Son, to save us. You want to put something on your thank God list for? Thank God that He saved you. Right? Thank God that you have the hope of heaven. We rejoice that he has promised to supply all our needs. That's not all your wants, because your wants will get you into trouble. He's promised to supply your needs. We rejoice that we can talk to him anywhere, anytime about anything. Do we take that for granted? Of course. Who else is going to listen to you at 2 a.m.? Right? Have you ever thought that God's hearing aid never goes off and he never takes a nap? He is available 24-7 whenever you need to talk. He's there. It's a fabulous blessing. We rejoice that God's given us a spiritual family to do life together. He's given us friends we can walk through life with instead of doing it all alone. We rejoice that even in death, the last enemy, death ushers us directly into the presence of God. Directly into the presence of Jesus. James 1.17 says, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. There's an old song that says, Count your blessings, name them one by one. You know what that says? Make a list. Write it down. All the ways God has blessed me. And what does it say? And it will surprise you what the Lord has done, because most of the good things in your life you take for granted. You know when I really take hot water for granted is when I don't have a hot shower in the morning. And then I go, man, I really took that hot water for granted. You think, right? When you count your blessings, you will understand how much God loves you. And that will produce joy. Make a list. I challenge you to come up to me next Sunday with a list. I'd love to see that. He's throwing it down. I'm telling you, right? Verse 5. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. Here's the principle. Spiritual stability comes from humbly accepting whatever God chooses to provide. Did he really say that? Spiritual stability comes from humbly accepting whatever God chooses to provide. Now, let's try and define forbearing spirit. It means someone who is sweetly reasonable. It means someone who's considerate, someone who's magnanimous, someone who's big-hearted, someone who's gracious, someone who's humble. It means not demanding your own way. It means forgiving others when they wrong you. 
It means submitting to ill treatment without revenge. It means accepting less than you think you deserve and giving others more than you think they deserve. By the way, your spouses do this to you every day. Yes? Say yes. Of course they do. It means being content in whatever circumstances you find yourself. It's the opposite of self-centeredness. It's other-centeredness. Here's a little phrase to remember. It's never all about me. Let's say that together. It's never all about me. It's about Jesus and what he has in mind for you. How is it possible to live like this? Well, he tells you the last half of the verse. Verse 5b, he says, The Lord is near... And then in light of that, he gives you a command in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. I never put 5B and 6 together until Friday night. And it's the most obvious thing here. How in the world can someone tell you to be anxious for nothing? Well, 5b says, the Lord is near, therefore. Here's the principle. Spiritual stability comes from believing that God is both great and good and joyfully surrendering everything to him. Spiritual stability comes from believing that God is both great and good and joyfully surrendering everything to him. See, that makes me pucker up just talking about it because I realize how little I do that. Because the Lord is near, therefore be anxious for nothing. Now, when he talks about the Lord is near, it doesn't only mean the Lord is near in time, you know. It means the Lord is close in space. It's proximity. The Lord is not far off. The Lord is close at hand. You know what close at hand means? As close as your hand Right? Your hand is close. That's how close the Lord is. Matter of fact, the Lord's a lot closer than that. Who lives inside us? The Holy Spirit of God permanently lives inside us. Can't get any closer than that. God is so close to you that as a child of God, you can't get away from him. Even though sometimes you might like to. Psalm 139 verse 7 says, Where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's a place of the dead, behold, you are there. And then he goes on and on and on and says, God, you're always present. Well, who is the God that's always present? Interesting psalm. You might want to jot it down. Just read Psalm 145. Psalm 145, 3 tells us that God is infinitely great. All-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent, can do anything, anytime, anywhere. And verse 9 tells us that God is everlastingly good. So God is great in terms of power, and he's a good God, a loving God, in terms of purity and compassion and mercy. Infinite power, everlasting goodness, and because this is the God we serve, he says, be anxious for nothing. I have the power to protect your life, and I have the compassion to do it. Now, what is anxiety? The word literally means to pull apart in pieces. Anxiety means to pull apart or to tear apart in pieces. It has the connotation of division, of dividing, of dreading, of doubting. And like I said, when you wake up at 2 a.m. and your mind's just going, do, 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 right? You're tearing stuff apart. You're trying to figure it out. You're cogitating on it, and it does not lead to sleep. It leads to worry, right? It's a common human reaction in the face of uncertainty or stress to worry. Now, in the face of everything, God commands us to be anxious for nothing. And it's a command, not a suggestion. So it means we can do it. It's a question of the will. It's not a question of emotion. Fear is a choice and faith is a choice as well. It's interesting. It's not compartmentalized. It's comprehensive. He says, don't be anxious about anything. 
not you can be anxious about something. So how is it possible to do that? Well, number one, it has nothing to do with your external circumstances. Freedom from anxiety is not based on having pleasant circumstances. It's based on faith in the infinite, sovereign, powerful, loving, personal, compassionate, merciful God who loves you and cares for you. On that basis, you can be free from anxiety. Now, I'm not talking about God-given fear. There are times that you honestly fear something. If I'm walking around not paying attention and I come between a grizzly bear sow and her cubs and she comes after me and wants to tear my head off because I'm close to her cubs, I will feel fear. Yes? The adrenaline will take me through the roof and that means you either fight or flee or freeze something and that can save your life. So God gives us, in some cases, the gift of fear. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about habitual worry and anxiety. And Jesus said, stop it, Matthew 6, 31. Do not be anxious then, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father, that's God, your loving heavenly Father, knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So you say, okay, what's the big deal with anxiety? Why does God command, don't be anxious? What's wrong with anxiety? Anxiety is evidence that deep down we doubt that God is either strong enough to protect us or that he loves us enough to provide for us. So it's actually doubting the character of God. And Jesus, of course, illustrates the point with the necessities of life, food, clothing, shelter, etc. Now, for most of us in this world, in the developed world, food, clothing, shelter is not a big deal. Most of you are not making lunch a matter of prayer. I.e., I don't have anything to eat. God, how are you going to provide for that? Most of us in the developed world, that's not a problem. There are a lot of people on planet Earth who do not know what they're going to have for the next meal. So Jesus talks about basic needs. Let me give you an illustration. Remember, the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee from the west side to the east side. It's about six miles. The lake's about 13 miles long, six miles wide, about 150 feet deep. And they're crossing from west to east, and they're rowing. And they get into a major storm, probably satanic-inspired, because Jesus is so tired, he's asleep in the stern of the boat. 26-foot boat, 13 people on it. It's a crowded boat. Probably the gunwales are not that far from the surface of the water. And this big storm comes up, and the disciples are seeing the waves, and they're terrified. And they say in Mark 4.38, Master, don't you care? We're perishing. We're going to drown. It's the deal. And you're sleeping. Don't you care that we're drowning, right? And Jesus woke up, and what does he do? He talks to the wind in the sea, and he says, Hush like you do to your grandchildren, never works. Be still, right? Or your children too, be still, right? Be still. And guess what? The sea and the wind respond to Jesus and is completely quiet. And he says, how is it that you have no faith? And then they wet their pants. They become terrified. And they're going, who is this? in the boat with us, that even the wind and the sea obey him. And they're freaked out, and you would be too. Because their concept of Jesus did not include the reality that he is the God of creation who created the wind and the sea and the storm and the winds. And they feared greatly, they worried greatly, because they had no clue that God was in the boat with them. And there's no storm that's going to sink a boat where the creator of the storm is sleeping. Right? So the picture here is pretty obvious. Your life is a boat. And it's pretty deep in the water. Sometimes. And the storms occur, and you're going, I'm in the boat by myself, or if God's with me, he's asleep at the wheel, or asleep behind me, and I'm going to drown or die, and you become anxious, and you say, God, if you're there, do something, 
wake up, I think you're asleep anyway, or you don't have enough power, or you don't care. Don't you care that we're sleeping? And we worry because like the disciples, our view of God is too small. How many of you ever saw the movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? That's a comedy. It's a tragedy that most Christians shrink their God down to itty-bitty size in their own mind. The truth is, if your God is as small as you think he is, then you ought to worry. Because he can't do anything anyway. Because he's so small. So when we're anxious, what we're saying is, my problem is bigger than my God. Which is true. Is the problem bigger than your God, or is God actually bigger than the problem? If God's bigger than the problem, then anxiety doesn't help. God says in Isaiah 40, he says, To whom then will you liken me? That I should be as equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Let me just give you a little word picture. As recently as 2016, the observable universe, what we can see, and we can't see any near all of it, is thought to contain 10 trillion galaxies, each with 100 billion stars. And I know some of you are in debt, but you're not in debt that much, right? That would make the number of stars in the universe that we know about so far one with 24 zeros, right? That's bigger than the United States debt. Pretty amazing, right? That's only 30 trillion. This is septillion, and that's a rather large number to say it. Now, septillion stars, one 24 zeros, God says, I organize every one of these stars in formation just like a general organizes their soldiers for battle. I tell them where to go. I've got them exactly in the orbits they want. I keep them in the orbits they want. I keep them in the galaxies they want. I control the movements of the galaxies, the movements of the stars, precisely where they want. Every star is precisely in its right place. And I know everyone by name because I named all septillion of them. That God knows your name. And you are more important than all the stars because you are made in his image. And he sent his son, Jesus, to pay your sin debt because he wants to spend eternity with you and I in heaven. And you're worried about tomorrow's schedule. Just think. Put it in perspective. Here's the solution for anxiety. Take it to the Lord in prayer. It's an old song. He says here, Paul says, By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Well, what's prayer? Prayer is conversation. Prayer is intimate conversation between God and us. Supplication is you're making an appeal. You're saying, God, I'd like this. I need this. It's a petition. It implies humility. You're going before God and you're asking him for something. And he says, let your requests be made known to God. How many of you, when you talk to God in prayer, know what you want? Exactly know what you want. How many times do you say, Lord, I really don't know, but I'm going to trust that your will is better than my will be done, so here's, here's what I'd like. I find it fascinating. Jesus, at the foot of the grapevine, actually, the foot of the hill that goes up to Jerusalem from Jericho, 1,300 feet below sea level, to Jerusalem, 2,500 feet up. Right there at Jericho, the week before he was crucified, he ran into a guy named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is blind. And he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears him and goes to him, and he asks him a question. And he says, What is it you want me to do for you? Does Bartimaeus know what he wants? Yeah, he says, Master, I want to see. Very specific. And Jesus said, be it done to you according to your faith. Restores the sight. 
Now, the truth of it is, sometimes we don't know what to ask for. So you know how you pray then? You say, Lord, you know what I need more than I know what I need. Your will be done. God will always answer, your will be done. Always. You will get a yes to that prayer. It says, make your request made known to God. It doesn't say make your request known to Uncle Tom or Uncle John or Aunt Susie or your congressional representative or your best buddy down the street. Most of us talk to other people before we talk to God. That's always a mistake. We should always talk to Jesus when? First. First. He's the only one that controls everything anyway. And Paul says, by the way, when you ask, thank him up front. Let your request be known to God with thanksgiving. Why? Why would you thank him in advance? Because whatever answer God gives you will always be the best answer. You thank him in advance because if he says no, that's the best answer. There's an old song that says, why worry when you can pray? Right? Heard that one? Well, we don't sing that one anymore. We sing, why pray when you can worry? I mean, here's why we rather worry than pray. When we pray, we acknowledge that we're not in control. We don't like not being in control. We'd rather worry and take medicine for ulcers, worrying about stuff. I realize it's a virus. Okay, I get it. But worry gives us a sense that it's on us, and we're in control, and we like that. Prayer says... I am not in control. God, you're in control. So I'm going to trust you to lead and guide and show me what you want me to do. And then one of the consequences of that is you get peace. Now, you don't pray to inform God. He already knows. You don't pray to persuade God. Oh, God, I've got a brilliant plan, and if you'll just rubber stamp it and make it happen, it'll be great. Because his plans are better anyway, right? We pray to deepen our relationship with God. We pray to declare our dependence on God. We pray to tell God what we need. And when we pray, God allows us to partner with him in accomplishing his purposes. Warren Wiersbe once noted, I thought this was great. When your request isn't right, God says no. When your timing isn't right, God says slow. When you're not right, God says grow. And when everything is right, God says go. Right? What's the consequence when you, by faith, bring your request to the Lord and stop being anxious because you have faith in the God who loves you and cares for you? Verse 7, here's the consequence. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, so guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here's the principle. Spiritual stability comes from God's supernatural peace, which protects us from anxiety and fear. Spiritual stability comes from God's supernatural peace, which protects us from anxiety and fear. Now, there's two kinds of peace. There's peace with God, and there's the peace of God. Peace with God is objective, and that comes because Jesus died in our place and paid the penalty for our sins. Romans 5.1 says, since we're justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's where God made, Jesus made peace with God on our behalf by dying in our sin, for our sins. He's not talking about that here. He's talking about the peace of God. The peace of God is a free gift, but it's something we have to pursue. It's not automatic. It's a sense of well-being. The source of the peace of God is the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And when you focus on Him, believe His promises and surrender your will to Him, you get the peace of God. When you take your mind off Jesus like Peter did and focus on the waves, you get anxiety and worry and you sink. So the key is, glance at your problems, gaze at Jesus. I, I'm fascinated to talk to people and say, how you doing? And they either say, well, fine, which I know is a lie most of the time, or I get an organ recital. This organ's not working, that organ's not working, the, the liver's a mess, the bladder's a mess, you know. And, and 30 minutes later, you're going, you know, I got all that stuff too, man. I mean, it kind of came off you onto me. The point is, you spend most of your time focused on Jesus, not that much time focused on your problems. That doesn't mean you go into denial about your problems, but you don't worship at the altar of the problems. Remember, one of Jesus' names is what? Prince of Problems. 
No, it says prince of peace. If you're submitted to his will, you'll encourage peace. If you're arguing with his will, you won't get peace. And he says this supernatural peace of God will guard your hearts. And the word guard here is garrison. It's a fortress. It's like a a castle with strong walls. So it's a picture of the peace of God protecting your heart and your mind from the enemies of anxiety, fear, doubt, and worry. By the way, Satan loves to cause doubt in your heart. What did he tell Eve? Has God said, really, you shall not eat of any of the tree? Right? What did God say? You can eat the whole garden, just one tree don't eat. So he created doubt that God was a good God. She began to worry about the goodness of God and decided to follow Satan. And us human beings have been doing that ever since. So the point of this passage, these seven verses are very quickly... God wants us to live stable lives and not get blown around like a small boat in a large hurricane. And the source of that stability is our relationship with him, and these seven points illustrate how to get that. Let's review, and then we'll have prayer and praise. Number one, spiritual stability comes from a personal relationship with the Lord. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you're not going to be spiritually stable no matter what you do. So that's the source of it. It's that life-giving, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Number two, spiritual stability comes from living in harmony with God's people. If you're always fighting with God's people, you're not going to have spiritual stability. Number three, spiritual stability comes when we count God's blessings and thank him for his faithful love. That is utterly essential that you do that. Make that list, know that God loves you, and Be aware of all the ways he shows it to you. Number four, four, spiritual stability comes from humbly accepting whatever God chooses to provide. This is where we get into a beef with God. God says, this is what you need, and we say, I don't want it. I want what I want. And when we get into that kind of situation, we don't have peace because we're arguing with the sovereignty of God. Number five, spiritual stability comes from believing that God is both great and good and surrendering everything to him. When you understand that God is infinitely powerful and infinitely loving, you can surrender everything to him and know he'll make better decisions than you will. Therefore, you don't have to worry. And lastly, spiritual stability comes from God's supernatural peace. That's the Holy Spirit, which protects us from anxiety and fear. You got enough to work on this week? Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.